but but we are in a crisis of of, of extinction. Many people say, and that's a symptom of our broken relationship with the natural world. We need to transform our whole relationship with the earth and with nature. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest. And as usual, she will introduce herself. Kusumita, can you please uh, go ahead? Thank you so much, Maurice. It's a joy to be with you here today. And uh, my name is Kusumita Peterson. And I live in New York City in the borough of Queens. And the social scientists say that the borough of Queens, New York is the most ethnically diverse place in the world. And it may have some rivals, but I have lived here um, for about 50 years. And it's an amazing experience to live in a place that's uh, has so many different kinds of people from all over the world. And uh, so, I'm, I'm a, I was born in New York, but I was raised in New England. And we lived in Connecticut and we spent the summer in Maine on Mount Desert Island. And Mount Desert Island is one of the most beautiful places in the entire world. And the mountains, the ocean, the woods and forests and waters of New England had formed me for my entire life. So um, that was really one of the most important experiences uh, and it still continues. And I was always a bookworm. Mm -hmm. And when I- uh, I can see that. I mean, the listeners cannot see it, but I can see it, you know, you're you're (laughs) behind you, there are all uh, books, yeah. Um, Yeah. and. and, uh, and I was uh, lucky to receive a very good education. But as soon as I um, became really more conscious, uh, you know, in my teens, I started to be interested in philosophy. And actually, while I was still in high school, I started reading about Buddhism. Hmm. And I found a reference to Zen that said, in Zen, one of the convictions is that language cannot attain to reality. There's, there's a uh, saying in Zen, as soon as you mm-hmm. speak about a thing, you miss the mark. And even at like age 15 or 16, I thought that makes a lot of sense to me. I believe that <laughs> language, uh, reality is, is in a, 
inexpressible. And yet we're always reaching for, you know, uh, expression through language, uh, through art and in all kinds of ways. So, um, so I started reading um, different works about philosophy, religion and Buddhism, especially. And when I got to college, I majored in philosophy. And so I was pursuing these questions and um, I was lucky that I was allowed to do that because um, to disclose my age, I graduated from college in 1968. And if I had been a young man, I would not have been allowed to major in philosophy by my family. <laughs> you know, I would have been, my brother majored in economics, uh, you know, you, you know, but being, being a, a girl, I could study, you know, you could study English, philosophy, whatever. So, um, I, and then I applied for a grant to go to Japan and study the Japanese language. I was already starting to study Japanese um, because even before I was in college, I wanted to study um, the world's religious and philosophical traditions. I really never wanted to do anything else. So I am an academic in religious studies, you know, that did yeah. happen, but we're still on the way. So. Um, I thought um, that Sanskrit was a dead language, but that's not true, but I didn't know that at the time. Hmm. And, and this is the 1960s, so going to mainland China was not, you know, really on the table. Mm -hmm. So I went to Japan, I thought I'll have an interesting time. And I lived in Japan for a year and I'd never been anywhere. I crossed the United States by train across the Pacific Ocean by boat. Mm -hmm. I ended up in Japan and I did study Japanese, uh, I'd already had a few years of it. And at that time I began the practice, actual practice of Zen, sitting in Zen or Zazen. At a certain moment, I thought enough reading about it, it's time to actually do it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then um, I came back from Japan to, to go to Colombia and I in New York. So that's when I settled in New York. I've been here ever since. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and I was in the Buddhist studies program. And then, um, then I've done a combination of things. Um, I, I wasn't able to get full-time teaching um, right away. Mm -hmm. And I ended up working for a non-governmental organization across the street from the UN. And I, I always say I was in the shadow of the UN because I never worked directly for the UN itself. Mm -hmm. But I, but I did um, work across the street from the UN, and then um, I, um, I, I did, uh, you know, not to go into too much detail, but I was able to teach full time for a few years. But then um, I quit my job at a particular university, and uh, came back to New York, not knowing what I would do, and that's. Um, and there was a series of events, I have to say, that increased my faith in a sort of providence or guiding hand. Yeah. Because I ended up working for an organization, Maurice, you may have heard of, the Temple of Understanding. Mm -hmm. And you may have encountered Temple of Understanding around the United Nations. And it's a pioneering uh, historic interfaith organization with a memorable name. And it was founded by a remarkable woman named Juliet Hollister, and I did know her. Um, she's of course she's no longer alive, but she started the organization in the 1960s. 
So that was my, um, I'm on the board of the Parliament of the World's Religions, as you know. And I'm also on the board of the Interfaith Center of New York and uh, working for the Temple of Understanding starting in 1983 was the beginning of my formal involvement in the interfaith movement. But as you gather, I already was a kind of an interfaith person because I was raised in the Episcopal Church of the USA. And um, so, uh, so that background is on the mm-hmm. Anglican tradition. It's yeah. a beautiful tradition. And, and I have a question to you because uh, two two questions. One is, you know, you when you started, you mentioned that, um, you know, the fact that you were in Maine uh, mm-hmm. was very important for you. So why why did you leave then? Why did you ended up end up in New York? Um, I I went to Columbia because I had a, a grant. Mm. The government would pay, give money for you yeah. to study critical languages, mm-hmm. and Japanese was uh, considered a critical language. But um, but in 1971, I became the student of a meditation master from India, mm. and I had to ha- have a, a discernment process to decide to change my spiritual path from Zen to become um, a, a student of Sri Chinmoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, in his lifetime, he passed away in 2007. But, um, and uh, so I lived in New York um, because he lived in New York. Mm. And I and I have so been a member of this spiritual community for almost 50 years. Mm. So this, this year it will be 50 years. Okay. So, uh, and um, so, so that's the answer to your question. Okay. Why didn't I go back to New England or, you know, somewhere? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about uh, Sri Chinmoy, is actually may, maybe a good bridge to a question that I have because you know that I started this podcast because you know for the nine last nine years I've been walking a hundred mile in a week mm-hmm. to raise awareness uh, about hunger and poverty and, and injustice and um, you know the question that I always ask my guest is you know if you would be asked to to walk a hundred miles for which cause or for what reason would you walk and I, I think I know what you're going to answer, but I, the, the listeners might not know. So, you know, why would you walk a hundred mile in a week? Um, um, I would walk a hundred miles in a week to lessen the probability of climate change catastrophe. Hmm. I would, I would walk a hundred miles and, and, and more to um, protect the natural world um, and, and ourselves within it, but we don't have any life apart from the web of life and, mm-hmm. and being on earth, our common home. Yeah. And, and uh, during one of the previous episodes, I talked with David Hales with whom you, you uh, published a book yes. uh, recently, right? So um, yeah. Can, can you tell the listeners again what what the book is about and why you wrote it i mean i've heard from david but i would like to hear your angle to this 
Well, yes. Yeah, so we mentioned the Parliament of the World's Religions, mm-hmm. and um, and David Hales uh, uh, joined the board as the founding chair. He became the founding chair of the uh, Climate Action Task Force. And the um, so my involvement in interfaith life, you know, more and more. I forgot to mention when I became part of the Temple of Understanding. It strengthened my connection with Father Thomas Berry, who I already knew. Hmm. And uh, and if the if the listeners want to know more about Thomas Berry, I'm happy to share. But um, Thomas Berry is um, was a Catholic priest and a, a philosopher, or he called himself not a theologian but a geologian, hmm. uh, who offers reflections on what he called human Earth relations, and he's been enormously influential. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was a, a great influence on me. So in interfaith life and uh, the Temple of Understanding was at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, where the Dean of the Cathedral, Jim Morton, mm-hmm. also was influenced by Thomas Berry. So in all of this that we were doing, um, the, the environment as it's called, uh, you know, was a central concern. Mm-hmm. And that's also how I met, um, came in contact with American Indian leaders and um, became more connected to their causes and got to know Chief Oren Lyons, my main mentor and in everything um, indigenous. So, um, so in this stream of concern, the United Nations Environment Program formed something called Interfaith Partnership for the Environment. Mm-hmm. And this was in the late eighties and early nineties. And then, um, Eventually, this uh, effort published a book, and the book was called Earth and Faith, a book of reflection for action. And the chief editor was Libby Bassett, um, uh, still a good friend of mine. And here it is. So this is, so here are the, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And uh, and I was a co-editor of Earth and Faith, and it came out in the year 2000. So flash forward to um, 2018, I think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I realized that the book Earth and Faith was still up on the UN Environment Program website. Mm -hmm. But it hadn't been republished for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And a lot had happened in 20 years. And um, by this time, so actually I made a mistake, it's early 2019, Um, the climate action um, of the parliament uh, was working with the Faith for Earth Initiative of UN Environment Program. And Dr. Iyad Abu Mogli, who's Mm -hmm. from Jordan, is the director of that program, which is a fairly new program. But this is all, all part of the growing recognition of incredibly important part faith communities have to play Mm -hmm. in the environmental crisis and the climate emergency. And I thought, gee, um, isn't it time to republish this book? Mm -hmm. So I emailed Iyad Abu Mowgli and I said, wouldn't you like to republish Earth and Faith? Mm -hmm. And he was very enthusiastic. He said he was already planning to do this. And I was so... um, thrilled with this idea, I sat down and wrote a proposal, which took me the whole day, and mm-hmm. sent it to David Hales. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and he also was extremely enthusiastic. 
And so, um, and that's how we published last October, the second edition, but it's now called Faith for Earth, um, A Call for Action. Okay. And it's available on the website, right? Of, uh... It's available for a free PDF on the uh, UN Environment Program website and also the Parliament of mm-hmm. the World's Religions website. And um, David Hales uh, is the co-author for Earth. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as you know, he's a diplomat, a leading conservationist mm-hmm. and um, former college president and a joy to work with on this book and everything else. And um, so it's an intro, a basic introduction to the issues of quote unquote, the environment and the basic teachings of the world's religions um, on our relation to nature. Yeah, and I, I really think it's a wonderful publication. So I would really in- encourage the listeners if they didn't check it out as yet that they should check it out. What what drives me in life? Um, well, um, I think, um, wow, you, you kind of put me on the spot. Um, Serene Jones is the president of Union Theological Seminary and she published her memoir recently and she Mm -hmm. she said there were four things that she was sure of. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I would say, and I thought, what would I say if I had to say four things that were most important or that I, you know, was sure of? Mm -hmm. And um, things you you can't, deny. And one is the beauty and sacredness of this world, of the natural world. And uh, surely uh, my spiritual teacher has taught that it's a manifestation. It's actually God in a different form that, um, um, and, and this is more of the perhaps perspective you have from India, that everything is sacred. But it's sacred. Um, but we 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 know the sacredness of it from the beauty of it, and um, and so the the beauty and um, awe-inspiring qualities. So, but there's also that que- the quest for truth, which Buddhists call enlightenment. Mm-hmm. You know, the direct experience of what's real. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so my interest in philosophy comes from that and I just happen to be a kind of person who not only quests for it, but you know, you know, can't avoid the words and ideas about it as well. Mm-hmm. And and then um, and then there is in all of these things um, philosophers and theologians can reflect on it at 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 great length. And then also poets can, you know, express them, you know, in, in more condensed language. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there's a, there is the difference between right and wrong. And if we, good and evil, right and wrong, that is ethics. Mm-hmm. So eventually my, my academic area has become ethics. And the book Faith for Earth is all about environmental ethics. Mm-hmm. And um, 
So if you, if you contend that there isn't a difference between right and wrong, you are what's called a nihilist. You know, somebody who doesn't believe that there's any meaning in life. Um, well, you've lost your way. <laughs> you know, you've lost your way. And, um, and these are very deep questions, but you asked. And, and then finally, um, there is a, um, um, love, affection, compassion, kindness. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. So this is something all of the paths and all of us have in, in you know, our hearts. Mm -hmm. um, so, so those are the four things that, you know, are most, most important, most valuable, which make everything else move. <laughs> Thanks, thanks, thanks for sharing that. that yeah, it's beautiful. Um, you know, when I when I walk um, with the different uh, guests, and you know, last year I couldn't walk. That's why I started this podcast to to kind of you know this virtual walking. Um, but very often, then we we uh, end up talking about uh, religion and spirituality, and then very quickly after that, what the younger generation, how the younger generation is. Uh, perceiving, experiencing uh, religion and spirituality, and so what I've I've uh, uh, you know started to to do is ask also my virtual guests what what they see in their own environment in their own communities mm -hmm. what is happening with the younger generation mm -hmm. and religion and spirituality. So you know, very often I've heard, uh, well, you know, this younger generation is less religious. Um, and uh, others say no they are it's similar so what are some of your observations and so mm. your thoughts uh, around this you know uh, you know acknowledging that of course when you talk about the younger generation you have to be very careful with the generalizations are you talking about the u.s context or or uh, you know mm. uh, asian context but yeah can you reflect a little bit on what i just said um sure um well, I did eventually go back to full-time teaching. Mm -hmm. And so I've been a classroom teacher for more than 40 years. Mm. So I have a lot to do with young people. Yeah, And, and I taught for 18 years at St. Francis College in Brooklyn. Mm. And I'll go back for a seminar there in the fall. And there the, um, you have uh, uh, students from the, the nitty gritty grassroots of New York, mm -hmm. Brooklyn, Queens, but also students from all over the world. Um, and very diverse. And uh, a lot of people have heard that the um, affiliation to religion mm -hmm. is decreasing, but that more and more people call themselves spiritual, but not religious. Mm -hmm. And I, I have issues with that expression because it sounds like you're rejecting something in order to be something. Mm -hmm. um, for most people in the world, you know, spirituality has been contained within religion but now we're in a time where spirituality, which means the inner and experiential, also exists without uh, uh, um, being part of an organized religion. But it sounds like you're rejecting religion, but that's not really true because what's happening is people who are spiritual but not religious in many cases are just uh, 
taking, they're eclectic. They're taking things from this tradition, that tradition, this culture, that culture, and they're making their own kind of combinations and adopting practices from here and there mm -hmm. and finding their own way because they don't feel because because it's allowed i mean why, why mm -hmm. not they're following their own um um kind of uh, they're on their own search but um i looked online um because you had advised that this question might come up and there's the the uh, Pew Forum does research on these issues, mm -hmm. and it's extremely interesting what they have found. Mm. Spirituality is increasing, both within the religious context and apart from religion. Spirituality itself is increasing in all the sectors. But the people who say that they are spiritual but not religious are not disproportionately young. Mm. They're of all ages middle-aged people just as much. Mm. <laughs> so I, so I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say that younger people um, are are that more of the people who are spiritual but not religious are young because that's not what the research seems to be mm -hmm, showing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that um, the young people that I know are very seriously, um, spiritual and um, uh, at St. Francis College anyway, uh, uh, they tended to be much more rooted in their um, traditional religions than in perhaps some other uh, institutions that I have taught at. Mm -hmm. So you'd want to look at different, um, you know, backgrounds. Uh, is how are how is spirituality and and religious affiliation? How does it vary from one group to another? So mm -hmm. I'm afraid that's a kind of very um, <laughs> kind of piecemeal answer to what you're asking. No, but I, I think it's it's that's really helpful, and, and I would be interested in in uh, getting the the link from the from the research for you, and I'm sure the mm -hmm. listeners as well. So maybe we can put that in the in the notes of the podcast. But in the interfaith movement, there are a great many people who want to learn more about the, all the different religions. Mm -hmm. And um, and and would would refer to themselves as spiritual rather than giving a primarily mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. tradition as their identity. Interfaith tends to attract many of those people. Mm -hmm. So so you have been quite active you know around the whole interfaith uh, movement if you compare you know in the initial years that you were involved and compare it with the present um, what are you most excited about in terms of what has you know developed within the interfaith movement um thank you so much for asking that um i think uh, uh well the landmark beginning of the interfaith movement was 1893 in Chicago, mm. the first parliament of the world's religions where Swami Vivekananda um, was the, by far the most celebrated, most famous figure. And the, the, the path of teaching I follow is very, very similar to him and his teacher, Sri Ramakrishna. Um, 
And beginning um, in 1893 and coming forward through the decades, I think the first, uh, and of course there were a, a, a couple of world wars and a pandemic uh, that, you know, in 1918 and mm -hmm. a lot of things happen. Um, but people were um, trying to find ways to just talk to one another. Mm -hmm. And there was a great impetus for the study of the world's religions. So one of the things Father Thomas Berry said um, was we're in a time where for the first time in human history, the uh, religions of the world can be fully present to each other. In theory, at least, all the information about all the religions is available to someone who wants to study it. And it's always, and you ask what drives me, of course, for me, another thing that drives me is to learn the things that are not familiar, you know, mm -hmm. just to find out the things that um, I haven't experienced. And so, but um, after World War II, there was a great impetus to interfaith dialogue because of Christians had a very bad conscience because of the Holocaust of the Jews of Europe. Mm -hmm. And also there was the emergence, it's a post-colonial period, um, and um, there was the emergence of, a, uni of, of, of a, 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 a new power to the idea that human dignity is universal, that every human being is worthy of respect, regardless of religion, race, national origin, gender, and all of this is in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as well as the global ethic of the parliament and other documents. And um, so there was a, an, a, an intensification of the uh, ideal of one humanity, the aspiration to oneness. And, and so the interfaith movement started to become stronger with the Temple of Understanding, Religions for Peace, other organizations you know about, and the parliament itself uh, in its new phase, a recent phase. And what has happened in the last like um, 50 years, I would say, is there's been a movement from just getting to know each other, like we can, you know, to working together on the critical issues. Mm -hmm. And you can watch that increasing and increasing in the programs. Mm -hmm. And also the interfaith movement has hugely increased all over the world. There are thousands of organizations. Uh, and nobody knows exactly how many there are, but the bulk, the majority of interfaith work is working on the issues um, like environment, poverty, conflict, um, women's issues, uh, race issues. And um, I'm very attached to the saying of the um, people's climate movement, which is, to solve, to change everything, we need everyone. Mm. So there isn't just one religion or, you know, that can do it by itself. Mm -hmm. um, and climate change is the most vast and enormous and complicated and pressing, urgently pressing issue that really to change, we have to change everything. And to change everything, we really do need everyone. And, and so that's what I would, you know, walk a hundred miles for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, th th thanks for that. Uh, if, if, you know. Um, yeah, then... and that's what the um, climate action of the parliament um, mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. David Hales and 
um, many other friends and colleagues, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. No, got you. Um, yeah, I mean, there are many challenges at the moment in, in the world. And, and uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the pandemic is just also a result that's related with climate change and we need to really, you know, get into action. Um, what are some of the things that you worry about at the moment? Outside of the, well, no, it can also be related with climate, of course. What, 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 what do you worry about? Um, I just, um, I worry about um, um, uh, that the change won't be fast enough mm -hmm. to avoid, um, you know, really enormous, I, I don't know what to say. Um, uh, people use the word catastrophe. Mm -hmm. um, so they speak of the tipping points in, you know, climate change. There could be some really enormous changes on this planet. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that connection, I personally always feel my heart is very affected by the sort of um, extinctions, you know, that, you know, uh, different forms of life will disappear. Um, and the in climate action, um, of the parliament, we're connected to the Vatican Commission on the COVID-19 emergency. They have a ecology working group and they just asked for input on biodiversity. And, um, and uh, our small working group uh, wrote a paper that we just handed in mm. called Biodiversity and Love. <laughs> mm. And, and um, David Hales is part of this group and made the point that um, worrying about biodiversity is just a symptom of, of the human alienation or um, hubris uh, uh, disconnection from nature. But, but we are in a crisis of, uh, of extinction, many people say, and that's a symptom of our broken relationship with the natural world. So we need to transform our whole relationship with the earth and with nature. I know you a little bit. I, I also know that you still see hope. Where do you see hope? Well, more and more people are awakening to these issues and are, mm. are, are dedicated to, to acting so that real change will occur. Mm. And people in the, um, as it's called, environmental movement, are, you know, have been put on notice for years that you have a problem with being very gloomy, discouraging, making people feel guilty, uh, you know, and so forth. <laughs> and, and so people have worked on that to, um, you know, uh, emphasize that there are things we can do. And in fact, we're doing them. And by the way, here's a plan, you know, here's a plan like the European Green Deal, like it's a whole plan for everything that you have to do. And um, so, and, and actually, um, I mean, we have the technology we have the economic means, we have everything that we need 
to effect this transformation, what we need is, is the will, the commitment. We talked about music already before we started the recording. Um, so music is very important for me and for you as well, I think. If, if it, I would ask you to mention a song mm-hmm. or a piece of music that embodies what you are about or for a big part of what you are about, which song or what piece of music would that be? I really tried to uh, think of, of an answer to this question. <laughs> and I tried to think of a song that is about the beauty of the earth and um and the community of all life and i and maybe we need to write one when we had the um so you asked about hope Mm -hmm. and um and we shall overcome has verses that aren't always um sung we'll walk hand in hand we are not afraid you know and uh, when we sang it at the uh, Parliament uh, of Religions convening at the Climate Action Assembly, we inserted the verse that um, uh, we will save the earth. Mm. Of course, it's not the earth that needs saving. We need to save ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the earth will be okay. But, um, but we, we put in those words and we sang them together. And, and um, because it's a song about a movement uh, that we, we, we try to, it's, it's a song that gives hope and strength to hearts of people in a movement. I would invite you to uh, listen to episode 29 of virtual walk talk listen where i talk with alicia fall and um i think two-thirds in i ask her the same questions about the song and she uh, she wrote a song actually called many blessings and i i think mm-hmm. you will enjoy that um mm-hmm. similarly to the to the text um, and if the listeners didn't check that episode out as yet i would also like to invite them mm-hmm. um we're slowly coming to to an end I have, um, you know, another question for you is if I would ask you to come up with a message or an invitation or a question for the listeners, um, yeah, what would you like to, to share? It's that none of us can exist, can live alone. Mm-hmm. We need each other to, to live, to exist, and we need the community of all life um, and um, the earth itself um, uh, to live, to exist. So that we need to expand our sense of self to the, to the greater community of life. Hmm. And I think all of the spiritual traditions do teach this. And, it, and, and one way to do it is through meditation and another is through service. And I think both of those are necessary. Well, th- yeah, thank you so much for, I learn always so much listening to you. Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed today again. I'm, I'm sure the listeners as well. Um, yeah, th- thank you so much for today. Is there anything okay. else that you would like to share 
or or ask um, me. I, I think we we said a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. I'd like to interview you sometime. <laughs> for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on www.100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram